0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you. So, the topic I was asked to address was, what is our future in a changing healthcare environment? And this gives you some of my perspective. Um, you know, when you do the AAD presidency, it's basically a three-year term because you're involved the year before, the year during and after. And it's kind of like a Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship on Health Policy because of the time you spend on Capitol Hill. And you get a very eye-opening exposure to what our future is going to hold. So it's not so much that things are going to change. It's that it is already happening. a lot of people are not aware of how much is going on, but there is a lot that's going to happen pretty rapidly to us. So this gives you an overview of the, the kind of things we're facing. Alternative payment models, um, you know, we'll talk about that in to some extent but it is likely very rapidly to change the field of how people practice medicine in the united states right now the majority of dermatology is still individual private practices and probably most people in the room work in that kind of a setting where you're part of a private practice a group practice those basically don't exist in many other countries. And the some of the predictions we have is that half of the private practices may be gone, become part of larger entities within the next 10 years. So lots of change on the horizon. Limited provider networks we're going to talk about, that's going to be another major driver of that. Um, so that gives you kind of an overview of what looks like a lot of gloom and doom. The main message is we have a chance to influence this. We as a specialty, dermatology is less than 2% of all healthcare providers. We're, We're little. And yet we have been incredibly effective in wielding influence in health policy and on Capitol Hill. And it's because we've been involved from very early on. We can do that, but only if we are a unified voice, and that means everyone in on the action and the message. So let's talk a little bit about alternative payment models. Right now, not everyone gets paid the same for the same services. Even through Medicare, you know, it looks like the Medicare fee schedule comes out and well, that's what you're going to be paid and everyone gets paid the same. No, they don't. So we already see tiered payments of various sorts. Right now, between PKRS and Meaningful Use and the other things on the Medicare side, It's about a 7% difference in what people get paid. But you look on the private payer side in places like New York City and Massachusetts and parts of California, it's already 30% variation in tiered payments for the same service provided. And if you look at the Senate blueprint for health care reform, where they say we should be in five years, They're saying 50 percent of payment tied to performance measures, 50 percent from what you code from fee for service. Well, what does overhead run? Runs about 50 percent, right? For most practices, it's in the 54 to 60 percent range for dermatology. That means most DERM practices have about 42%, 42 cents on the dollar left over on the table after you've covered your, um, just your expenses. So that's what's left for salaries, is about 42 cents on the dollar in the average practice. Well, if they're doing a 50% tied to fee-for-service, that it has a lot of teeth in it, what they're talking about. We already see that larger health systems get better rates. So in South Carolina, I'm part of the medical university that belongs to the state. And we are the only comprehensive medical center in the state of South Carolina no one can do without that medical center, so we are able to bargain for good rates. The state payer plans, for instance, for Medicaid, for specialty pediatrics, you know, our pediatric dermatologist, most of her practice is Medicaid. Well, is that really bad? Well, she gets 125% of Medicare for every Medicaid patient she sees. Most other people around the country get 20 to 40% of Medicare for every Medicaid. So the state is taking care. The state knows it can't do without pediatric subspecialists. And the ped subspecialists see a lot of Medicaid. So they made sure that those people get enough to cover their costs. The states will watch out for things like that. And the larger institutions will have some degree of protection we're already seeing the there's a drift in new york city over a four year period a third of all derm practices sold out and they're all they just became bought out by bigger health systems and most of the remainder have gone into an ipa association so they've gone into um, you know They don't belong to Mount Sinai, but they're part of Mount Sinai's group bargaining plan. The trend was so fast that Sinai, NYU, Cornell, they closed their IPAs to new members. So anyone who hadn't joined was on the outside, which is, the outside can be a scary place to be when changes are happening rapidly. So I'll give you a little insight for who's driving all this. You know, it sounds like, you know, is it, who is it? Is it Medicare? Is it Blue Cross Blue Shield? Who am I supposed to be mad at, right? Well, most of this is driven by purchasers. So my biggest eye-opener was when as AAD president, I had to go, I went with Brett Coldiron, and we visited with groups like the Midwest Business Group on Health and the Pacific Business Group on Health. So who are these guys? Well, they are Target stores, McDonald's restaurants, Procter and Gamble, IBM. This is big corporate America that employs millions of Americans. When you look at who's involved in these two business groups, They employ more Americans than any, you know, the majority of Americans are spoken for, right there, in those groups through employment. They look at their bottom line, 20 years ago versus now, their single biggest expense is healthcare for their employees. And these, the you know, the most eye-opening thing was the Midwest business group. These are very paternalistic companies. Your grandfather worked for us. Your dad worked for us. You work for us. They value those kind of relationships with their employees. They take care of their employees. Whereas a lot of companies had said, you know, we're not going to pay for acne. These people aren't like that. They want to take care of their employees, but they are going to find a way to buy it cheaper. So companies like IBM went into an exclusive deal with Mayo Clinic. All their employees were going to get their care from one provider through Mayo. And no one's going to say, well, you chose bad quality. It's Mayo, right? They chose something that had a lot of appeal to their employees, that they were getting something really good. And because they gave Mayo an exclusive on Every last employee would get their health care there. They got really good rates. In our area, Boeing has just gone into an exclusive. Lots and lots of big companies are going into exclusives. So what does that mean? It means that in some areas, people are seeing 20, 30, 40 percent of their patient population going away because they went to someone else in an exclusive arrangement. The big organizations, they can make these kind of deals, and and they do, because they don't want to lose the business, they don't want to lose that number of people. Um, The Targets and Procter and Gambles, they have really smart people whose full-time job, is to negotiate cheaper rates and find cheaper ways to provide the health care to their employees. When we went to them, we talked about things like skin cancer prevention. These are companies that plan to keep their employees their whole lives and then take care of them when they're retired. To them, that's something that really resonated with them, that you know, we would come in and we would reduce, find ways to help them reduce their health care costs long term. When you look at obesity and lymphedema and skin cancer and things like that, that's a lot of their costs down the road. And if we approach them as a specialty and say we're going to engage with them then they're less likely to go looking at, you know, derm services being a problem and handing them off to, um, to an exclusive provider. So it is something that we got engaged with basically in self-defense of the specialty because if we don't start offering them ways to start cutting costs for their healthcare, they're going to look for other ways and their way is usually just real simple who's going to give me the best deal which brings us to united healthcare so united healthcare is not anybody's best payer but in some areas like florida and connecticut it is 40 to 50% of all patients well in florida they went into an exclusive with one practice and everyone else was disenrolled and a lot of AAD members in Florida found that they had lost 50% of their patient population overnight um, with that deal so there was a lawsuit who brought the lawsuit it was the AMA together with the American Academy of Dermatology brought the lawsuit in Connecticut and we won, and we won in New York, where the governor stepped in and there was, and the governor shut down the um, limited provider networks in New York until there was further study. So, organized medicine can step in and can make changes. Now, there um, there were some, we need data, basically, if we appear self-serving, we get nowhere. So you ally yourself with patient groups and you need data. Well, what did United do um, in in most states? So in Florida, they went in with one practice. And they were easily assailed because patients were driving 200 miles to get to be seen by, by someone associated with that practice. Um, elsewhere... What United did is they simply looked at who of their impaneled providers cost them the least, spent the least money. That's who they kept. Well, we looked at some data. The really cost-effective ones, the ones that really cost them very little, they had one thing in common. They were all dead. Right? You know, dead people don't write a lot of prescriptions. They don't cost the insurance company a lot. So they had a lot of dead people impanelled as providers and the living ones they had disenrolled most of and so you know we had data that we could attack them with so these are the states that already have narrowed networks anything that is not in blue it's uh, it's already on the way and there has been um, political effort, court injunction, etc., keeping it from moving in right now. So, you know, what did what was the AAD able to achieve? Well, in very short time, they put Jack Resnick. If you don't know Jack, he is. boy, that's not a good. You don't know Jack? No, that's not what I meant. <laughs> if you don't know Jack Resnick. Um, you need to. He has been probably the single most effective proponent of our specialty on Capitol Hill. Um, the guy is a dynamo. He, he's at University of California at San Francisco. He, they let him travel to Capitol Hill to do this kind of advocacy work. And so you know the university's kind of subsidizing um, some of his salary to do that. The rest of it, he just takes us a salary cut and goes and represents us, and he has been phenomenal. He put together this network adequacy group, gathered the data together with, um, with other volunteers, and we were able, we have very close connection with what's called the Coalition of Skin Diseases. These are patient groups, because when we go to Capitol Hill, it looks self-serving. When the patients go to Capitol Hill, they patients, they're voters, that really resonates on the Hill. Um, and we put together resources, and these resources, they're not protected. I mean, anyone can go there and and look at it. And if you haven't done any reading about this, just go to the AAD website and read some of this. You'll find it very, very helpful. And we got a letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, people in Congress read the long Wall Street Journal, and who else reads it? The CEOs at Procter & Gamble and Target, and they were reading about what the issues were with the limited provider networks. That was a real coup for us and really has slowed the momentum of these changes. So organized response, Um, You know, in Arkansas and California, why are are so many of those states not blue? Those states are not blue because of this kind of effort that um, has put in many cases legislation into place that ensures patient access to care, which was really being limited by the um, tight provider networks. Okay, the next thing. In office ancillary services exception. What is that? Big mouthful of words. Well, this is the thing that allows dermatologists to read slides in their offices and in group practices. It allows Mohs to exist because without this exception, Stark would say that you can't both produce the specimen and read the specimen in your practice. Well, if MOse goes away, how many of the practices that you work with would be solvent if Mose disappeared? For many practices, path being read in the practice is part of what keeps the practice afloat. I mean, that's part of what covers the expenses and pays salaries. What has put us at risk is the GAO has data mostly on urology and GI. If you're, when urologists added a lab to their practice, they did five times as many prostate biopsies after adding the lab as they did before adding the lab, and they did not find any more prostate cancers. So five times as many needle sticks into the prostate, no increase in diagnosis of cancer, And these were all established practices. So they weren't people just getting started. Nothing changed in their patient population. Nothing changed except that they added a lab. It made physicians look really, really bad. And it was mainly urology and NGI, but DERM was in there too. And we are very much at risk for losing on the ancillary services exception, if we lose it, a lot of practices will not be solvent. So, you know, these are things that are very much at at risk. In our specialty, we have data. Um, there There are abuses in DERM. The number, the vast majority of physicians and the vast majority of any healthcare provider who no matter who you are you just want to do your work take care of your patients and get fair pay for what you do that's the majority of all of us there are a few outliers and what's the difference with derm it's not that we have more bad apples it's just ours do it in a more spectacular fashion than any other specialty there was one guy in florida who went to prison and at the time he went to prison um, he was actually turned in by a histotech. Every patient had four basal cells. Every basal cell got Mohs. Every Mohs had four stages. Every stage had the same number of slides. And what the histotech who turned him in, it was someone who was moonlighting and came into the practice and said, this is not human tissue. It was bazooka bubble gum that was being embedded. And this guy was just a criminal, right? He was. So there are some people like that. There was another one in Florida recently. Sorry, Florida, but you are sometimes ground zero for this stuff. Um, Another guy settled $25 million in excess charges over the previous two years. You know, you got to ask yourself at what point did it take for someone at the CMS to say, well, maybe there's something wrong with that, you know, $25 million over two years going to one guy. Um, but, you know, there are problems there. The next thing medical necessity audit. So, how many of you have been audited in your practice, have had a Medicare audit come in? Any hands? So it happens, and it's happening with increasing frequency. What, you, what an audit used to consist of is someone would come in and pull all the documentation and show that what was billed matches what was written on the piece of paper. That is no longer what it is. What they do now is who do they hire? They hire retired physicians and nurses. A lot of who they're hiring are burnt-out internists who have retired from their practice. They worked long hours for low pay, and there is nothing that annoys them more than people they think are gaming the system. And what they are supposed to be doing is judging medical necessity of the services provided. Here's the problem. I got involved in this when a member of the board of the Massachusetts Derm Society, this is someone who's really well-respected. She's a good dermatologist, very honest person. She was audited. She lost. They found that more than half of all of her biopsies, they ruled as not medically necessary, including the ones that were positive for cancer, because of, quote, Lack of documentation of signs and symptoms that prompted the biopsy, like melanoma's itch. I mean, it it made no sense. But she appealed. She had gone through thousands and thousands of dollars in lawyer fees, and she lost on appeal. It's at that point that she contacted me and the AAD got involved and we got a meeting with the carrier medical director and the auditors got fired and you know it was ultimately found in her favor but only after the national society got involved she had lost on appeal despite digging deeply into her savings for attorney fees. That's, you know, that's the disturbing part about that, despite how ridiculous the, the findings were. The most recent thing, back again in Massachusetts, was biopsies being ruled as not medically necessary because, quote, the ABCDs of melanoma were not documented in the note. Well, the ABCDs are meant to teach the lay public what a worrisome mole is. They're not meant for medical documentation. We all know that, right? Um, But things that ridiculous are happening, and they happen to large numbers of people. Um, The other one was a Moes issue where they said if any piece of the tissue, if any immunostain in the last stage went to a lab, then it wasn't Mohs, and that was another one we had to fight. So you know what are the big things in the changing environment? Fee for service versus value-based purchasing. So fee for service is how we've been paid up till now. Value-based purchasing is how ho- Congress says we are going to be paid. And they are well on their way with these things. And The problem is it is bipartisan, it is bicameral. That means it is House and Senate, and it is Democrats and Republicans. And the major provisions in these things are agreed upon by both parties. So no matter who wins in the next election, a lot of this stuff is going to go forward. It's just a fact of what the future holds. Bundled payments for episodes of care, that means you've got a skin, you've got a patient who has skin cancer, there is going to be one bundled payment for skin cancer. They already have this in Germany and Canada. You're basically paid to take care of Mr. Smith's skin cancer. If you EDNC him, if you do Moe's, whatever, you're getting one payment. That's all you're getting to take care of Mr. Smith. And if Mr. Smith has a lot of cancers versus a few cancers, doesn't matter. You're getting one lump payment to take care of them and unfortunately in some of the models that have been tried here, where does the majority of that lump payment go? It goes to the primary care guy who's sending Mr. Smith to you every time he has a problem. Not going to the people doing the work. The next thing is maintenance of licensure. States are moving to maintenance of licensure, that means that whatever your initial certification was, whether it's as a physician, a nurse, a PA, there will be ongoing requirements that are not just CME. And those ongoing requirements will be linked to the maintenance of your license. And that it's been tested already in the physician arena, but it is moving forward. And when they do the math, they can't pay their bills just foisting this on physicians. So it's going to be everyone else as well. Every last nurse, everyone else involved in healthcare. So PAs, nurses, everyone's going to be in on this because when they do the math, they need all those fees to pay the costs involved in doing this. So, how much of this really improves the quality of healthcare in America? Probably a minority. Um, you know, what bits of it probably have the most impact? Well, we actually have some data that the per, having performance improvement products, projects in your practice, that actually has some impact. Well, that's the least popular part of MOC among physicians, and it's the part that's kind of been put on hold. When you look at groups who actually don't mind MOC, It's the OBGYNs, they actually like it and it's because their specialty approached it differently. They push out monthly modules and those monthly modules have everything that's new in the field that you really ought to know. You know, what's new this year? What's new this month? They divide it out, they parse it out into bite-sized chunks that they forward every month. And you get your credit for keeping up with those key advances in the specialty. And that actually has gone really well in OBGYN. So other specialties are taking note of what's actually working and are trying to do the same thing. Well, we get some bad PR. Um, So this was New York Times. And the problem is everyone in Congress reads the New York Times. So does the CEO of Target Stores and Procter & Gamble, right? So they read in the New York Times, patient costs skyrocket, specialist income soar, profitable dermatology is page two of that article, right? Um, We are a lightning rod. Why are we a lightning rod? Because we are less than 2% of all healthcare providers, and yet we are 4% of all Medicare reimbursements. So we get reimbursed twice what most other physician specialties do. Um, It's made us a lightning rod. Now, the fact that the, the patient visit that this whole article was built around, most of the costs were a plastic surgical repair that took place in a hospital and it was the hospital facility fees was the majority of the cost. That never appears anywhere in the article. So what Congress is seeing and what the CEO of Target Stores is seeing is the headlines, right? The only way we can fight back is unified voice like it or not the AMA is the largest group representing healthcare providers in the US and the AAD is the largest group representing our specialty both groups are ineffective if there's a fragmented message so what the AAD really needs is strong ties with other societies and patient groups so what Um, What we did, uh, I was AAD president when the New York Times article came out. You know, great time to have just become AAD president, right? And um, we put in place, because it wasn't, what we found is that New York Times, you get a 150 word reply is what you're allowed. And the first society to reply gets that 150 words. And that's it. After that, no one's going to hear anything else. We uh, it was a, It was a mad scramble when that happened. And that's not the way it should be. So what we put in place is we put in place a checklist. You know, what happens if you're flying in a plane and suddenly an engine goes bad? What do they do? They pull out a book. And they open the book, and the book has a checklist of every step that they are supposed to do because it is too important on an airplane, if, they, if someone forgets to throw that switch that stops them from dumping fuel, all the fuel's gone and the plane's gonna fall out of the sky, right? So they can't afford to miss any step in that critical process. We put the same kind of checklist in place for any crisis in dermatology. What's the first step? Is the first step is the executive director of the AAD has to reach out to every patient group and every other specialty group that represents dermatology. That means the ASDS, it means the Derm Nurses Association, it means your group, it means everyone who's in so that we are having a coordinated response to this. And the patient groups are key. So, you know, one of my favorite quotes is Ben Franklin's quote. This was at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. You know, we celebrate that as a huge event in US history. To the British, it was treason, right? Everyone who signed that document was signing their name to a treasonous act. And Ben Franklin's quote was, gentlemen, if we don't hang together today, we will each hang separately, right? Never been truer than what's going on in medicine. If we don't hang together as a cohesive group, no one else is gonna look out for our patients, right? The state society, it's not just the AAD, it's all of organized medicine, which is us, right? Um, state societies are frontline. If you guys are not actively involved in your state and local societies, you should be. They don't exclude anyone. They don't care what the initials are after your name, whether you're an MD, D-O-P-A. Everyone who works in dermatology is in, in these societies. They're all active members and you should be because all politics is local and it's the only way. We win most of our battles, not at a federal level, but at a state level. And if you practice anywhere near your state's capital, you're key. And they, you know, the people who actually write law are attorneys who work for the legislators. They're tired of seeing one more group of physicians in fancy suits but when they see patient groups and they see nurses and they see PAs and people who are involved in healthcare who aren't the same group that usually shows up, it really means something to them and um, our message is delivered effectively. The AAD does have an office on state affairs that we started during my term and we put a lot of money into it because what we found is the issue's happening in more than one state. These things are never isolated to one state. And every state and local society, they've got really limited resources. There was a really bad precedent happening in New Jersey. And the board of the New Jersey Derm Society had decided they were just going to let it happen. They weren't going to fight it because they didn't have the resources. Wrong answer, the AAD has funds for that kind of thing. and. So instead of every state reinventing the wheel, we have three attorneys who are on full-time staff at the AAD to help provide advice for these kinds of issues, and we have a slush fund to help fight them as they come up in individual states. So that was my message on that. We have a little extra time. So first, I'm going to open it up for questions and comments on the issue, and then... You know, I spent 10 years as um, the coding guy to the CPT editorial panel. And if you count in the time that I was writing stuff for CPT Assistant, which is the Bible on coding, if something's in CPT Assistant, you won, basically, if you're appealing something. Um, It's 15 years that I spent doing this stuff. Um, No conflict of interest other than that, but I'll give you a couple of my basic coding my best coding tips um, if we have a little time left over and no questions or comments. So let's open the floor first. Is everyone so thoroughly depressed that you can't speak at this point? (laughs) You know, it's it's not that bad if we're involved. It's just the message is you can't afford to sit back and just do your job. Because you won't have a job in five years if you do that. Everyone needs to be involved, and everyone needs to be involved now, and we need to be involved as one coordinated voice. Was there a question or comment over here somewhere that I missed? Okay. Um, well, I'm going to give you some top key things. One is, Does your practice, these are things to ask when you get back home, does your practice have a coding compliance plan in place? It's not that hard. You know, there are five things it has to have. And they're they're listed right there And that article at the bottom, which anyone can get online, tells you exactly how to put one together and has an example. If you don't have one of these, what happens is CMS comes in, they audit 10 charts. If they find five of those are non-compliant, they can legally extrapolate that to half of everything your practice has ever billed Medicare since the most senior member of that practice opened the practice. And if you don't have an active compliance plan in place, they can treble damages. So, you know, triple whatever that added up to, which is how you get these $20 million findings against practices, right? So if you don't have a compliance plan, it's not that hard. And you just, you have to have one. And all it says is there has to be a compliance officer. It can be anyone in the group. You have to have documented education, which can be as simple as everyone's going to read Durham Code and Consult every quarter when it comes out. Disciplinary guidelines, which you have to have, because if you find that you have one, there's one bad apple in your group, they can take the whole group down unless you've got some rules in your group that says if this person you know, continues doing things that are bad, the group has a right to fire them. Um, you have to have an internal audit, and this is the single most important message from this portion, never retrospective, always prospective. What does that mean? Is you never voluntarily audit anything that has already been billed to Medicare. And this is why if you do a prospective audit, so the bill hasn't dropped yet and you audit something and you find a mistake, what's your legal obligation to correct the mistake? If you do a retrospective audit, so you audit a single chart where the bill has already dropped and you find an error, what is your legal obligation? To research and find every visit that ever occurred in your practice that made the same error, notify every patient, notify CMS, and pay it all back. Which situation would you rather be in, right? That's why we only voluntarily do prospective audits. And then there just has to be some form where you document corrective action. so it's pretty simple. It's not hard, but, and it really protects the practice to have it in place. So you do need internal audit. It's not hard to hire people, they're not very expensive. You never want the practice's billing person. Why? Because the practice's billing person is the person most likely to be stealing from the practice. And unfortunately, because I've given this talk at state societies for years, um, every year two or three people contact me and say, I "Wish I had listened," you know. It